We have a wonderful Savior who has shed his own blood for us. Uh, let us read about him in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Please turn to Hebrews 3, and when you have that, stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be looking just at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 3, but I will go ahead and read the first six verses here. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word, which instructs us and gives us life. We thank you for what it says of Christ, uh, him being uh, the one who saves us. We thank you for this one who is the apostle and high priest of our confession, as it says here in this passage. And we ask that you would help us to consider this truth, that we might understand it more deeply uh, and appreciate it with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. The words of Scripture are very important. The words of God are very important. And the words spoken by His Son are very important. Uh, God has throughout time, spoken to man, but there's a particular message that he reserved for his son when his son was sent to earth to speak it. And that message is the gospel. Not that the gospel wasn't present in the words of the prophets before, but it comes with a particular clarity with the son's words about the kingdom of God. And with his own life, as he shed his blood on the cross, as he died and was buried and was raised again for our glorification. These are all things that are uh, excellent truths that are available to us through the incarnation of Christ, that he, uh, though being God, became man and dwelt with us. And this is a truth that many people think about and they appreciate about God being sent uh, in the person of the Son. But uh, the ways that people consider it are sometimes somewhat limited. Uh, for example, you think tomorrow, many people will be celebrating the incarnation, and they will be doing so thinking of Jesus, for one, as Messiah, you know, the one sent by God to be anointed, the king over his people. Or they may think of him as, uh, as Emmanuel, the one who is sent to be God with us, right, to, to dwell with us as, as both man and God united in this one person of Jesus Christ. However, a term that is a very biblical term and applies very directly to Christ that is not often considered as applying to him, this one we have right here in this passage. How many people tomorrow, as they think of 
uh, the Son being sent by the Father, will they consider him an apostle? But this passage speaks of Jesus as being the apostle of our confession. In fact, this is literally what the word apostle means, that he is one sent by God. And this is exactly what people think of Jesus as. They think of him as being sent by God. But do they think of him as an apostle, as one sent in this particular way with a particular message? And so, as we consider Jesus Christ here in this passage, I want to uh, spend this morning speaking of him as being the apostle of God, that Jesus Christ is an apostle, and what that means for your life, uh, what that means for you as you consider this one who was sent to earth with a message. Consider here the beginning of this passage and what it means in context. Uh, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, it speaks of him here as being a high priest. Now, this is something that is not new in the book of Hebrews. It has been just speaking of him as a high priest. It had said in the previous two verses, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is speaking of the incarnation. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus Christ uh, became man, and the Son of God became man, so that he might be a high priest, so that he might make a sacrifice for sin. But not just so that he might be high priest, but also in order that he might be an apostle. Now this is uh, this is what's being said here. This argument in Hebrews, uh, it's important to, uh, when you're reading the book of Hebrews or any of Paul's epistles especially, and I'll go ahead and disclose, I do think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, there's often times where he'll take a, uh, a, a detour, or what appears to be um, an unrelated detour, but it really is related. You know, here at the end of chapter 2, we talked about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and we're going to pick that up again at the very end of Hebrews 4, after he's done comparing Jesus to Moses and to Joshua. And so, does he just get sidetracked here and go and talk about Jesus as a, uh, after having talked about him as priest, interrupts his thoughts about Jesus as a priest to speak of him as a prophet and as an apostle, uh, compare him to Moses and to Joshua? Is he just getting sidetracked, or is there something more to this? No, this is, the very, this is the very message that he's trying to give, that we need to listen to Jesus. And so he's illustrating that in many ways. And now that he is speaking of him as being a high priest, he mentions this is not the only reason that he became incarnate, but it is also to be an apostle. And so in what sense is Jesus Christ uh, an apostle? Well, an apostle means one who is sent. So the word uh, stello means sent. Apo means from, to be sent from someone, apostello or apostolos. So Jesus Christ is one who is sent from God. There are several kinds of apostles in the Bible. You know, there are apostles who are sent by Christ. Uh, so you have the 12 apostles, you have Paul. These are ones who are particularly eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, uh, sent by Christ. 
they have a special authority to write scripture, to declare things on behalf of Christ because they were with him for uh, three years while he walked on this earth. And interestingly, you look at Paul and his life, you say, well, where was Paul taught by Jesus? Well, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. But then on top of that, in Galatians 1, it says that after Jesus appeared to him, he went for three years to Arabia to tarry. It doesn't explain why that happened. Just, just, he just mentions that he went for three years and didn't speak to anyone, any of the other apostles. Now, why do you think that he went away for precisely three years? It does seem that this is the time when Christ instructed him. Where does he get all this, all this learning, all these lessons from Christ? It seems to be during those three years. So you have these apostles of Christ uh, trained each for three years, eyewitnesses of him, who are declaring his message with a particular authority. Uh, this is not the kind of apostle that Christ is, because he is not sent by himself, but he is sent by his Father. There's another kind of apostle the Bible seems to speak of. These are ones who are appointed and sent out by churches. They are sent from churches. This is also not the kind of apostle that Jesus is, because, as I said, he is sent by his Father. He's not sent by himself. He's not sent by the church, but he is sent by the Father. Now, another a uh, very related concept of an apostle is a prophet. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is founded on the apostles and the prophets. And here, in this context, it's right to think about apostles and prophets as being very similar. Now, in that New Testament context where you have the, those particular apostles sent out by Christ and all the various prophets that were along with them, uh, there is a serious distinction between those two. But here we have a comparison because when it compares Jesus to Moses. Uh, what is Moses? Moses is one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, if not the greatest uh, prophet you have before John the Baptist. Um, it says, even at the end of Deuteronomy, that uh, no prophet arose after who was greater than Moses. Now, of course, that's at the time of Deuteronomy, and so I'm not sure how we're to consider that as you, as you move forward beyond uh, the first five books of the Bible. But Moses was a very great prophet, and Moses was one who was sent by God. So it would not be wrong to consider Moses as being an apostle of God to the people because he is sent by God to the people. And so this comparison is made uh, between Moses and Jesus here. And it is necessary that the incarnation take place in order for Jesus to be this apostle. You know, this is, this is the theme of Hebrews 2 where Hebrews 1 is talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And then Hebrews 2 begins to explain, well, why is it that he seemed for a little while to be lower than the angels? Why is it that he became man? And many answers are given. And one of the answers is it is necessary in order for him to be a high priest. And now the answer includes the fact that it is necessary in order for him to be uh, an apostle. That mediatorship of Christ uh, goes in both directions. He mediates uh, to the Father, right? He represents us to the Father. We talked last week about how uh, when we offer our sacrifices, when we offer our worship, our prayers, or even our own selves, these things are not acceptable because they are, they are good in themselves or, or perfect in themselves. Rather, they are acceptable as Christ, who is a perfect one and a perfect mediator, who is both man and God, uh, mediates these things to the Father. But likewise, the opposite is true, that Christ 
mediates from the Father to his people, that this message is given by God to the people. And what is this message? This message is a disclosure of who God is, and it's something that cannot be fully appreciated apart from the incarnation, apart from Christ uh, being man. It says in uh, John 1.18 that no one at any time has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one has seen God, but Jesus Christ has made Him known. Even at the beginning of this book, in verse 3 of chapter 1, it said, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. It is necessary, if we are to truly appreciate God and know who it is, who, know who He is, uh, the incarnation is absolutely necessary for this. It's not necessary just that uh, we have a representative to stand before God, but it is also necessary that God have a representative to stand before us and speak to us in a way that we can fully appreciate. He is that perfect mediator who is both fully God, fully man, very God, very man. Uh, so this is yeah, this is necessary in order for us to receive this wonderful message that he has given. You know, if you had a pen pal and you wrote them letters and they never wrote you back, uh, how much would you say you'd really be able to know about this pen pal? <laughs> uh, there's not much that you would know about them. Uh, you might know a little about them from things you hear about others, but apart from him uh, communicating back to you, you have nothing. And so this apostleship stands side by side with Christ's high priesthood in order that we might not only be represented to God, but also hear God speak to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we must consider him as one who speaks. That's what this whole passage is about. Uh, we are to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We are to consider him. We are to consider him as an apostle, as one who speaks to us. Many people think of Jesus is one that they speak to, that they go to when they have problems. You know, they live their life and they run into some problems. They go to Jesus for help. They go to the Father for help, and they know that Jesus is their mediator that presents them to the Father and makes their prayers acceptable before Him. And all that is well and good, but it is important to also consider Him, not just as a high priest, not just as one we go to, that we speak to, but also as one who speaks to us who get, delivers us a message from God, a self-disclosure of who He is, a wonderful gospel of His goodness. So we must consider Him not just as one that we speak to, but one who speaks to us. Now consider also the various ways that the author here addresses his audience. You notice there's quite a bit that he says here before he says, consider Jesus. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Uh, these all have a lot of significance to his message and has a lot of significance in context. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Consider what it had said in verse 11 of chapter 2. For he who sanctifies... You know, what is sanctifying? It's making holy. So when he's talking about holy brethren, he's calling back to that. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So this previous passage spoke of how the incarnation makes us holy brothers. It makes us 
brothers because he is able to join with us and us with him in his suffering. Uh, apart from the incarnation, he would not be one who suffers. Uh, there would be no way for him to uh, bear the weight of our sin and die in our place. There would be no way for us to uh, identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection and, and suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. These things would be impossible. And so it is necessary for him to be man in order that we might be brothers with him. But then also it is through that very sacrifice that he has made that it's impossible apart from the incarnation that we are made holy by his shed blood. So we are made holy brothers. And then on top of that, uh, we are given a heavenly calling. Uh, we are given a heavenly calling. Uh, we are uh, called into a kingdom. We are called to experience something greater than, uh, than the comparison that's being made here is to the Israelites. What was their calling? Their calling was to live long in the land, to, to dwell in the promised land. Uh, this is a very earthly calling that they were given. Now, of course, uh, they served a heavenly God, and there was implied uh, many times over uh, a heavenly calling. Uh, even as you see in Hebrews 11.10, it says, uh, it says of uh, Abraham, uh, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So it speaks of uh, Abraham recognizing that there's a heavenly city awaiting for him. So it's not that this calling didn't exist, but in terms of the covenant that it was given, it was one that was expressly earthly. And we are given, in our covenant with God, one that is expressly heavenly. We are called to something higher. And repeatedly, uh, this author in Hebrews is telling us to consider these things from a heavenly perspective, to move away from thinking about things in an earthly perspective, and to think of things from a heavenly perspective. You know, if you're thinking of things from just what you see and from a very earthly perspective, it is easy to be discouraged. It's easy to think wrongly about things. It is easy to, um, to despair. But if you are thinking heavenly thoughts, if you are thinking about things rightly, it is very easy to serve the Lord the way you want. It's very easy to find encouragement and joy. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the story of, uh, of Elijah and his servant who's with him. And he, uh, and he feels overwhelmed because he's surrounded. But then he sees, uh, because Elijah prays to the Lord, he sees God's armies surrounding. And then with that heavenly sight, He's able to have joy and encouragement that's needed to, to stand and not despair and not faint in that situation. So we have a heavenly calling that we are called to. And he also calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, what does that mean exactly, that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession? Well, Romans 10, uh, Romans 10, 9 says that whoever uh, confesses Jesus as Lord will be saved, speaks of confessing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the confession. So when it says the apostle and high priest of our confession, uh, the conclusion a lot of people come to is that it's speaking of him as being the one who in some way administers our confession or has delivered to us what our confession is. And while that is all true, I believe this is speaking objectively of him as being the confession itself. And so lastly here, it speaks of this confession, uh, this confession that is 
our confession of Jesus, our high priest and apostle. And so what are the implications of all these things? Uh, being holy brothers, sharing in a heavenly calling, having him as, our, as the apostle and high priest of our heavenly calling, of our confession, I mean. Well, the implication is that we should consider him. So this is what it says in this verse. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he says all this, therefore, holy brothers, consider him. Therefore, because of this incarnation, because he has been made man to be a high priest, and even to be an apostle, let us therefore consider him as both of these things. Let us consider this message that he has given. And so why should holy brothers consider these things? Well, if you've been made holy uh, by this one, by Jesus Christ, certainly you should consider the mechanism by which you were made holy. You were made holy not only by his priesthood, but also by his apostleship, him uh, washing the church with the water of the word. And why does having a heavenly calling uh, require us to consider him? Well, if you have a heavenly calling and not an earthly one, our mind should not dwell on the things of the earth. Rather, it should dwell in heavenly things. And if he is the apostle and high priest of our confession, then why should we consider him? Well, because if we are to confess him as Lord and either explicitly or implicitly confess him as our high priest, to confess him as our apostle, the one who has been sent by God to deliver us this gospel, then it would be uh, hypocritical to uh, claim this, to make this confession without actually considering him as our high priest, as our apostle, to actually consider the message that he has given, this gospel. This message, what is this message that we are to consider? Well, what are we to consider? It's Jesus Christ himself. He is his own message. He is the message from the Father. And that message includes the gospel, uh, the goodness of God and the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. And so all of that is to be considered. And this is a repeated, um, uh, this is a repeated statement throughout Hebrews. This is, this is the main point of Hebrews, is that we need to consider the Son. And so, you know, as you consider this passage in the flow of Hebrews, once again, this is not just some tangent where the author of this, of this letter um, got sidetracked and started talking about Moses and Joshua. Rather, it sticks with this point. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it said, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to us by our by the prophets, to our fathers, by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And so he starts off, the very first verse is about you need to listen to the one that God has spoken through. You need to listen to the Son. In Hebrews chapter 2, it talks, it says, uh, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So in other words, if, the, if angels are greater than Jesus and the old covenant delivered at the hands of angels on Mount Sinai, if we're to listen to their message, how much more are we to listen to the message of Christ? So chapter 1 starts off with, listen to the message of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 starts off, listen to the message of Jesus Christ. How is chapter 3 starting off? Listen to the message of Jesus Christ. This is the point of the passage. This is the consistent point in Hebrews that will be... Uh, repeated over and over, that his message is to be considered, and his message 
is even himself. He is the one who is to be considered. And so how should you, how should you consider this? Well, very practically, he has given us his word to consider him by. Uh, you should be reading God's word. You should be in it regularly in order that you might have that heavenly mindset, in order that you might follow that heavenly calling. Now, I don't know what your uh, scripture reading habits look like, but if you aren't daily in God's word, uh, you really need to be in order to have this heavenly mindset. We are called to be developing uh, this mind, dwelling on the things not of this earth, but the things of heaven. So this is something that ought to be done, and now is a perfect time to really commit yourself to the task. Uh, we're at the time of year when people start making resolutions for themselves. I don't know how poorly your last year resolutions went, whether or not you ended up following through with all your commitments. Maybe you had commitments about Bible reading a lot of time. Uh, Christians do have some goal each year for Bible reading. And I'd guess that uh, far more than a majority of those times, uh, that fails. <laughs> but uh, now is the time, and now is the time to commit yourself to the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you have found it too difficult in the past, set a more modest goal. If you have found it too difficult to read the whole Bible in a single year, uh, set something that will be accomplishable for you and spend time in the Word. You know, and make a... Uh, make a thing out of it, right? You can, you can get a new Bible. There's tons of extra Bibles around here. If you want one, talk to me. I'll get you one. And you can, uh, you can highlight particular themes. You can do whatever you want this year as you, uh, as you read God's Word. You don't have to be constrained to just, uh, uh, to just reading the Bible straight through uh, as, as your goal. You can try to uh, find all the passages that talk about a particular theme and highlight those themes. You can have a particular goal for yourself. Think about the ways that you would like to grow in your heavenly calling, and you can design your Bible reading around that, especially as you make plans for this upcoming year. So I would encourage you in that regard. And also, I would encourage you that I know that this time of year when a lot of people are taking time off, it becomes very easy to get distracted in your Bible reading and to be doing other things because you don't have the regular schedule. The words of God are the words of life. Uh, you need the words of life. And you will, you will feel it if you do not, if you are not feasting on that which, which gives life. Yeah, if, you, if you go into the holidays, you eat a lot of food, uh, that will affect you. <laughs> and if you go into the holidays and you are not eating the, the food that is more precious, uh, that will affect you. Okay, so we are to consider Christ. Now it speaks of why, uh, of, of one additional reason that we are to consider Christ, of, of something that is of particular note as we compare him to speakers who have come before. You know, the comparison was made to angels in the previous two chapters, and what that implies for us, angels being messengers of God, and now a comparison is being made to Moses, Moses being a very particular messenger of God, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. Moses himself being an apostle of God, in a sense. It says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house? And so how is, how is Christ faithful? Well, we have just spoken of him as a faithful high priest. In verse 17, it said, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He operated faithfully as a high priest, offering his own life, interceding for the people. And now it continues on, uh, 
com- making that comparison of faithfulness not just to uh, priests, but to prophets, to Moses. And he is a faithful prophet. How is he a faithful prophet? Well, he came when he was sent. He delivered uh, the word faithfully. He had pure lips. You see all the prophets in the past, uh, all the great prophets, you know, Jeremiah, Moses, Isaiah. um, They all complained that their lips were insufficiently pure to speak God's message, and so God had to specially purify them. Christ is the only one of all these prophets who had lips pure enough to speak uh, a greater message than even those prophets were given. His lips were pure because he never sinned. He never spoke one sinful word in his whole life. So he's a perfectly faithful prophet. He's a perfectly faithful apostle. And he did so courageously, not fearing anything that would come, uh, not fearing any repercussions for what he would say, but fearing only God. He is perfectly faithful. And it says, just as Moses was also faithful in God's house, Moses uh, led the people faithfully uh, throughout the land, giving them the words that he was given to say to them. But as you go and you consider Moses' life, you realize even though Moses is called faithful, his faithfulness pales in comparison to the faithfulness of Christ. Uh, Numbers 20.12 reports that uh, Moses was not able to go into the land uh, that was promised because of his lack of faithfulness, because uh, he did not trust the Lord. But Christ has in every point perfectly trusted the Lord. Now, there's something really special going on with the way that this is phrased here, because we've made this comparison between Jesus and, and Moses. Talks about Moses being faithful, and he will in a Moses minute not just make the side-by-side comparison uh, as, as though they are equals, but explain how much greater Christ is than Moses. But before he gets to that, he uses this phrase that Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Now, if you are the original audience of this, of, of, uh, this letter or sermon, may it be, and you hear these things, uh, and you're a Hebrew, you would recognize that phrase about Moses being faithful in God's house because it, it comes from a particular passage, and I'd like us to all go there. Please turn, if you will, to uh, Numbers 12. Numbers chapter 12, and we'll begin looking in the first verses. This is where it speaks of Moses being faithful in all God's house. And you'll begin to see how important it is that Jesus Christ be this kind of apostle who is sent by God, uh, both man and God, a mediator. You know, Moses, it says in, uh, in Galatians 3.19, it describes Moses as the mediator of the, of the old covenant. And Jesus Christ is this greater mediator. Uh, why it is that we need Christ as this mediator, like Moses, but even more faithful. Numbers 12, beginning in verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has not he spoken through us also? You know, aren't there other people who, who speak? You know, is he really that great of an apostle of God? Is he that great of a prophet? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. 
and the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. There's that phrase. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. He departed. Someone might make a comparison between Moses and the others. And what makes Moses special? He is faithful in all my house. Therefore, I appear before him. He witnesses me, and I speak to him mouth to mouth. In other words, uh, face to face, right? He speaks to him directly, not in, not in parables and visions and in dreams, but he has the word of God directly. Now, if these things may be said about Moses, this one who is said to be faithful in all God's house, how much more does this apply to Jesus Christ, who is faithful even beyond Moses? How much more is it true that he is one who knows God and beholds him and has the words of God directly, not in vague things that he then communicates to the people, but in, in clear, crystal truths that he, as the apostle of God, communicates to his people, uh, especially equipped to uh, sending even his spirit that we might know these truths immediately, experiencing the goodness of God in us. Uh, Jesus Christ is this uh, greater apostle, greater prophet than even Moses, because he is faithful in all God's house, so that God and he have the, the closest form of, a rela of relationship imaginable, that the words spoken to him are as, as, uh, as clear and unequivocal as may be, so that when he speaks to us, what he is speaking to us is not something that is uh, tampered with or tainted or cloudy, right? All the prophets of the past, now Moses, what was so amazing about him was he was not being, he was not speaking in, in visions, right? It wasn't, okay, well, uh, Joseph sees a vision or he has a dream and then God interprets it to him and it contains some details. Moses had much more than that and he's explaining to the people much more detail of what God has planned for them. He's got detail after detail after detail that we've been reading as we read through Exodus about the tabernacle and all the things they're supposed to have. He's got details from God because he is faithful in all God's house. Well, what does Christ have? Christ has every last detail. He has omniscience itself. He beholds God's face to face with him and we in seeing him, are be able to behold God. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. How do you know the Father? How do you know the Father as we ought to know him? Ultimately, the prophets of the past are not able to communicate with the clarity that Jesus Christ is able to communicate who the Father is. And we have that clarity in the Son who is faithful in the house of God, not as a servant, but as a son, as it explains in the next few verses of Hebrews. And this is a, a, a wonderful truth that should call us to hear this message of the son, to embrace this message of the son, this message of him himself uh, disclosing who God is to us. Now, 
At this point, there are several things I want to consider. First of all, uh, an objection that may come. Well, if we're speaking of Christ as being one who is clear, who has these details, who's communicating with greater clarity than any of the prophets of the past, why does he speak in parables? Doesn't he speak in a way that is even more occluded than many of the prophets spoke? Well, Jesus made it clear in Matthew 13, 13, why he speaks in parables. That is for particular people who are not his sheep, but those who are his sheep, they hear his voice and they come to him and they hear his words clearly. If you have bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you do not hear vague parables. You hear the voice of God himself speaking to you as Christ speaks to you, and you know these details. Now, yes, it is the case that those who uh, reject him and their unbelief, they do not receive these words, and they only understand, they may have read the Bible multiple times over. They have, may have read all the red letters and heard all the words of Christ that are recorded for us and not understand them, and they'd be cloudy things. But we who have the Spirit of God, Christ speaks to his sheep. His intention is to communicate to us with clarity. Now, there are difficult uh, passages that we will still wrestle with in this life, but he is speaking to us, and we are growing in our understanding of him, and on that final day, it will all be clear as we stand before him and we behold him. Now, several implications of this truth. Uh, the first of all is what this says about the New Testament. The Old Testament is given through the various prophets, and the New Testament is given through Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 1, 1 said, uh, that, that in the former times God spoke in many ways to the fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That includes the whole New Testament, even the letters that aren't in red. And that is because they are spoken through, uh, they are spoken by Christ to his apostles, and his apostles relay the message. The New Testament are the words of Christ, and it is uh, especially important, especially clear. That's why it is right to allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. There are some people who uh, look at that pattern of interpreting the Bible, and they say that's reading the Bible backwards. What you're supposed to do is read the Old Testament, and any ideas that you got when you read it, read it first, need to be locked in and can't be changed by the New Testament. Um, you see, many people interpret prophecies that way. There are many passages, I would argue, in the Old Testament should not be taken literally because the New Testament clearly recognize them as being symbolic. Uh, but there are some people who would say, well, you need, to, you need to grasp on to all the literalism, and you can't let the New Testament change that because that would be reading the Bible backwards. No, the New Testament is designed to interpret the Old Testament for us. Next one is the New Covenant. As I said, the, uh, Moses is the mediator of the Old Covenant, this covenant that the people had to uh, dwell in the Promised Land. Uh, Jesus is given as a greater mediator of a greater covenant. And so this new covenant, uh, this salvation that we have through his blood is far greater than, the, than whatever temporal salvations were offered through the old covenant. Uh, Hebrews 10.4 says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Uh, it is only the case that uh, in the old covenant, those sacrifices were taking care of their sin in order that in terms of the covenant, they may, they may live in the land, not uh, providing them with an eternal salvation. That is something only the blood of Christ can do. So this shows not only the, um, 
superiority in a sense of the New Testament, but also the superiority of the New Covenant actually providing salvation for people and a clarity that the Old Covenant cannot provide, uh, being an earthly calling rather than a heavenly one. And the next, it shows the, the greatness of the gospel in comparison to the law. Uh, for, excuse me, John 1.17 says that the law came through Moses, but grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. Uh, that grace coming through Christ, that gospel that has come through Christ, is a message that can save. The law is excellent, it is perfect, but it cannot save. Uh, the gospel can save, and that is, that is far greater than the law is, and that which Moses has mediated. Now, you may think of all these things, and, you know, as you read Hebrews, and it says, consider Jesus our apostle, and all these things I put side by side and show that one's greater New Testament, Old Testament, uh, New Covenant, Old Covenant, and understand the sense in which I'm calling these things greater. I wouldn't say that the Word of God is, uh, in the Old Testament, is uh, lacking in any way. But the New Testament comes with a clarity of, uh, of the message given by Jesus to his apostles. Now, you may look at all that, and you may say, well, I don't see any of that as a problem for, for people today. Maybe for this original audience. You know, this original audience is tempted to, you know, focus on Old Testament revelation. The original audience is uh, tempted to, you know, uh, would be tempted to keep their mind in the Old Covenant and those promises and rather than the, the New Covenant. How is this relevant for Christians today? For Christians today, I mean, you can hardly get them to even read the Old Testament. Sometimes they're spending so much time in the New Testament, or they may spend very little time thinking of the Old Covenant. And how many Christians today even know the Ten Commandments, you know, even know the law of God? Of course, they're thinking more about the gospel. Well, if that's, if that's your response to all this, then I would say this. The, the particular message that Christ has given is salvation in himself, and this is something that we are constantly, constantly uh, tempted to deviate from and to lose our focus from that aspect of our heavenly calling. And even if you may not have the, the law and the Old Testament memorized, even if you may not uh, spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, you may be one who, uh, you know, there are many people who spend their time uh, in churches just thinking about New Testament, just thinking about New Covenant, just thinking about the gospel, not thinking about the law, etc. Uh, regardless, it is a constant temptation to think about a relationship with God as being based on our performance before Him, to, as being based on our works. And this is, this is the temptation that still stands even today, and perhaps even more so as uh, we are uh, distracted by the things of the world in a way that, you know, someone, a Jew who is steeped in, in Jewish literature might not be. And so consider that. Don't consider this uh, just the application of, uh, yes, we should have a special place for understanding the New Testament, a special place for understanding the New Covenant. But uh, we are called to have a special focus on the gospel, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might not uh, return to Old Covenant thinking that would imply that our standing before the Lord is based on our, uh, our works. Now, I feel like I need to clarify what I mean there because I'm not, I'm, 
I'm not suggesting that the old covenant was bad. It is simply lacking and that it, it could not save. It is an illustration of the salvation that is given by Jesus Christ. And so why is, this, why is this so important? Well, it's important because if you think that your relationship with God is based on your own works, if you, as it says in Hebrews 12, come to him on the basis of Sinai rather than the basis of Zion, if you come to him on the basis of his law rather than the basis of his, of, uh, or in the basis of your own works rather than the basis of his grace and his gospel, uh, you will lack so much. Not only will you lack salvation because the uh, because you will not have the gospel. So Galatians 5.4 says, if you seek to be justified by law, you are severed from grace. But it is also the case that you will lack so much more. And even as we as Christians who believe the gospel get distracted, we will begin lacking these things. How many people are discouraged because, because they do not have their focus thinking on their heavenly calling, their focus on the gospel of God? How much more encouragement would there be if you were thinking about what Christ has provided in himself, in his sacrifice, in his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, how much more joy and gratitude would there be if you weren't thinking about uh, all, the, all the ways that you don't measure up, but rather all the ways that Christ has measured up to God's perfect standard on your behalf? So many people struggle with assurance of salvation, why is that? It's because they are not focused on Christ. They are not considering Christ the apostle and his message. They are rather considering themselves, and they are considering uh, their own standing on the basis of their own merit rather than on Christ's merit. You know, all these things being that which is lost if we are distracted away from the message of Jesus Christ. And how much pride rises in the heart, too, as we uh, as we think about our standing with God being based on something other than the gospel. If we think that our standing with God is based on our own merit, our own works, uh, we grow in pride and we become judgmental. You know, how, how uh, and I was thinking about this earlier, you know, bitterness in my own life towards others, how much is it cleared away when I think rather of not, you know, what they've either done to me or haven't done for me or or uh, if I'm not measuring them by that, but instead measuring them by the standard which God measures them by, which is the standard of Christ, them being in Christ, being perfect before him, uh, me also failing on my own, but being perfect before God because of the mercy of Jesus Christ, how much easier does that make it to forgive? How much easier does that make it to be unified? And how easily does uh, bitterness and disappointment and uh, disunity settle into a church that does not have their eye on the gospel, but rather begins being distracted, even if not explicitly, just implicitly by a, a merit-based notion of our standing before God. And so as you consider Christ, consider him as he is presented in Scripture, one who brings good news, one who brings good news of salvation, one who does not just call us to uh, obedience as though that obedience will make us right toward God, but one who calls us to obedience and gratitude to participate with him in his sufferings in order that we may be glorified with him. And as you speak of him, I, I don't know what positions you are to speak about the gospel, maybe just as you speak to your friends, uh, maybe, uh, maybe you are one who leads your family in worship, 
But have this on your mind also, that as you explain God's Word to people, if you lead your family in family worship, uh, then do so as one who understands that the message of Christ is one of grace, one of the gospel. And if you struggle to understand how to connect Scripture to that gospel, uh, that is a place to develop, and you can always ask a pastor or someone else to help you understand how to see the gospel in each passage, how to see Christ in each passage. If you are one who is sharing the, the good news with others, you've seen so many street evangelists who hold signs of judgment and do not seem to understand the grace of God. Uh, judgment is important because it shows us our need for the grace of God, but uh, there's no saving message without the grace of God. And especially as you are speaking to yourself and your own internal monologue is going on and you're dealing with the anxieties of your day and dealing with uh, whatever it is that you're dealing with. Hear this message of Jesus Christ, uh, the apostle who was sent to us, who's both God and man, perfect mediator in both directions, uh, representing us to God and representing God to us, uh, being the very image of God. Hear this goodness and grace that he has died for the weak and for the lowly and for all those who do not measure up to God's standard in order that we may be counted as righteous in the sight of God and might have joy and peace in him and might have eternal life and dwell with him forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great message that we have received, that we have received in Christ himself, the one who is not only a great high priest, but your apostle sent to us. We thank you for him. We thank you for his faithfulness in all your house, uh, even as Moses was faithful in your house, and even more so. And we pray that you would keep our eyes focused on him, and that through that we would have joy and gladness, humility, uh, unity with one another, and love. And that you would just fill your church with love for one another, and by this men would know that we are his disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.